You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Father, we are thankful for your word, and our prayer is that through your word we would come to see ourselves more clearly and that you would be here to speak to our hearts through your word, convict us, and encourage us this morning as we look into the mirror of your perfect word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It is amazing to me how quick we are by nature to assume the worst in somebody and assume from one side of the story that we might hear about the deeds of another individual how right that one side of the story is, and then to make rash and quick judgments about the individual that we hear about. And oftentimes we do this just based upon one side of the story that we hear. You ever found yourself doing that? Somebody comes to you with a really savory tale about somebody that something has, something that somebody has done, and before you even hear the other side of the story or any other information, you make a judgment call, you make an assumption, you come down on one side or the other before you've even heard both sides of it. We do that all of the time, and Scripture warns us about doing it. There's a modern proverb that we have that says there's always two sides to every story. right? We say that all the time. We seldom really believe that or listen to it ourselves, but there are two sides to every story. Proverbs chapter 18 has two proverbs that speak to this, and listen to these. Proverbs 18.13, He who gives an answer before he hears... It is folly and a shame to him. You give an answer before you hear all of the facts or all of the details or all of the sides of a story, and you give an answer or you make a judgment call or you make a decision and you jump out and take action on that. Proverbs says, before you hear everything, if you make action on that, it is a folly and a shame to you. Proverbs 18, verse 17. The first to plead his case seems right until another comes and examines him. The first one to plead his case seems right. Uh, Somebody comes to you and they tell you a story about something that happened or from their perspective, a series of events that happened to them, and you listen to him and the proverb says it seems right. You're inclined to believe him because he's telling you the story. You're inclined to believe that he wouldn't exaggerate or, or boast about himself or misrepresent the other side. And so he seems right until the other person from the other side of the story comes in and begins to present counter evidence or present his side of the story and begins to ask questions and examines the first guy. Then you start to see the holes in his story. If you have kids, you have seen this more times than you can count. You hear an altercation in the other room and you run into the other room and Johnny and Joey are fighting over a toy. And so you stop right in the middle of that altercation and you begin to ask questions. And Johnny gives you his perspective. He gives you his story. And if you only listen to Johnny's story, you would assume that Johnny was right and that Joey must be a horrible culprit. But then you ask Joey to give you his side of the story, and Joey begins to unfold something that doesn't even resemble at all what Johnny gave you, and you start to wonder if either Joey or Johnny, either one of them were in the room when the altercation started. And sometimes you have to ask the opinion and the input of an unbiased, uninterested person who was in the room and saw it happen to begin with. But if you had just gone from Johnny's story, you would have disciplined Joey, but then Joey tells you the story, and you're not... It seemed right. Until the other kid gave you his perspective, and now you're not sure who to believe. 
What would you think of a criminal justice system that only allowed the prosecution to make their case and then the judge and the jury made the decision and handed down a sentence? What would you think of a criminal justice system that just allowed the defense to present their case without the prosecution presenting their case and then the judge and the jury were to make a decision based upon hearing only one side of the testimony? You recognize immediately how corrupt that would be, how unwise that would be, how foolish and how shameful such a system would be. So it shouldn't surprise us that having heard one side of the story, that the governor Felix would then turn to the apostle Paul and say, now give me your perspective. And what's ironic in Acts chapter 24 is that Felix, the governor, has actually already heard two sides of the story. The first he heard from Lysias, who when he transferred Paul to Felix to give him off to Felix to judge Paul's case, Lysias sent a letter with all of the official play-by-play from his perspective of what had happened. And Lysias reported how he had seen the mob in the temple and he had gone in and rescued the Apostle Paul from the Jews who were trying to kill him and that he found out he was a Roman soldier, a Roman citizen. And then he took Paul and put him before the council and heard the case there. But then Lysias says, I was able to discern that their case against Paul had to do with things pertaining to their own law. They were theological issues, not criminal issues. And Lysias' perspective was he's under no accusation, deserving death or imprisonment. Here you go, Felix. You judge him. Then Felix waits for the accusers, the prosecution, to come in. He's heard Lysias's, that's the Roman commander in Jerusalem. He has heard Lysias' perspective. And now the prosecution has given their perspective on the Apostle Paul. And do you remember what the, the prosecution accused him of? There were three accusations that we looked at last week. They came in. The very first thing they said was, this man is a pest. He's spreader of pestilence. He's annoying to us. He is a hazard. He is a, a safety concern. We need to exterminate him or quarantine him. Well, what has he done? Remember the three accusations? He was guilty of sedition. They said up in chapter 24, verse 5, he stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the whole world. No specifics, just the accusation that he was guilty of sedition. Second, they charged him with sectarianism. He is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. The third accusation that they raised against him was one of sacrilege, that he had tried to desecrate the temple. He stirred up the Jews, that's sedition. He is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, that's sectarianism. And he tried to desecrate the temple, that's sacrilege. One was a violation of Roman law, one was a violation of Jewish law, and one was a violation of God's law. They thought they had their bases covered. Then Paul is given the opportunity to speak in verses 10, and we're going to be looking these next two weeks, today and next Lord's Day, at Paul's defense. And Paul shows his ability to be a, a, a good public speaker, a, a masterful defendant. He, he hasn't hired an attorney. Paul is actually representing himself. Ananias and the Jews had brought in Tertullus, the orator, the attorney, to present their case. Paul just does it himself. And he gives his own defense before Felix, contained in verses 10 to verse 21, and Paul, one by one, answers each one of those charges. In verses 10 through 13, the Apostle Paul answers the charge of sedition. In verses 14 through 16, he answers the charge of sectarianism. And in verses 17 through 21, he answers the charge of sacrilege. So look at verse 10, and I'll show you how he answers each one of those charges. Beginning of verse 10, when the governor had nodded for Paul to speak, Paul responded, knowing that for many years you have been a judge to this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Now look at him talk about not being guilty of sedition. Since you can take note of the fact that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship, neither in the temple nor in the synagogues nor in the city itself did they catch me carrying on a conversation with anyone or causing a riot, nor can they prove to you the charges of which they now accuse me. That is his defense against the charge of sedition. 
Verse 14, But this I admit to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that's in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. In view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience before God and before men. That is his defense against sectarianism. Then the defense against sacrilege. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings in which they found me occupied in the temple. His argument is I wasn't trying to defile the temple. I was bringing offerings there to worship there. Having been purified without any crowd or uproar, but there were some Jews from Asia who ought to have been present before you and to make accusation if they should have anything against me, or else let these men themselves tell what misdeed they found when I stood before their council other than for this one statement, which I shouted out while standing among them, for the resurrection of the dead, I'm on trial before you today. That's his defense against the charge of sacrilege. Today we're just going to look at the defense against the charge of sedition. And Lord willing, next week we will look at the next two charges, his defense against sectarianism and his defense against sacrilege. But we learn a lot about the Apostle Paul in these few verses, 10 through 13, as he gives his defense against the charge of sedition. Friends, it's not just... What he says to Felix that is significant, what is instructive to us, is how the Apostle Paul says it to Felix. There is something in Paul's manner, how he comports himself, his demeanor, how he behaves himself while under false accusations, that is incredibly instructive to us. So let's look at the text. Verse 10, when the governor had nodded for him to speak, Paul responded. So you can picture the courtroom scene. Everybody is gathered there in Felix's governor's mansion. The court has been called. The prosecution has presented its case. They have stepped back. And now the governor, Felix, without even having to say a word, just looks in the Apostle Paul's direction and nods to him as if to say, go ahead and say your piece. He wants to hear both sides of the story. Now I want you to notice something. All through the prosecution, what has Paul said? Absolutely nothing. He has been silent. He hasn't interrupted Tertullus. He hasn't protested his prosecution. He hasn't said objection, Your Honor. He has sat there while Tertullus has assassinated his character, called him names, impugned his motives, and charged him with three things that would have been absolutely abhorrent to the Apostle Paul. All of those false accusations and everything related to his ministry, his character, his personality, his integrity, all of that has been drug out and he has been called names and he has been drugged through the mud and the Apostle Paul has been absolutely silent and he is sitting in court waiting for his turn turn peacefully and patiently. Friends, that is the demeanor, that is the behavior of a man who is righteous and innocent. That is the type of behavior and demeanor that fits a righteous individual under false accusations. He has not returned evil for evil. He has not interrupted Tertullus. He has absolute confidence that whatever decision comes down is going to be God's will, and he hands himself over to the Lord, and he allows Tertullus to make his case without protesting or making a disturbance or a nuisance of himself in the courtroom. And finally, Felix nods his direction, and the Apostle Paul presents his case. And what does he say? Knowing that for many years you have been a judge of this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Now, do you notice something that's missing? Remember last week? How did Tertullus start his prosecution? What did he say? You know what's missing with the Apostle Paul is all of the flattery. Remember what Tertullus said, verse 2? Since we have through you attained much peace, 
and being car- and by your providence, reforms are being carried out for this nation. We acknowledge this in every way and everywhere. Most excellent Felix with all thankfulness. Blah, 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 blah. All of that puffing him up, all of that stretching of the truth, all of those lies that Tertullus told about Felix in order to flatter him. Do you notice that the Apostle Paul doesn't do that? What does he say? For many years you've been a judge to this nation, so I cheerfully make my defense before you. There's no flattery there. It's just a statement of a couple of facts. It's a, it's a complimentary fact that Felix had been the governor of the nation for five years. Before that, he served under another governor up in Samaria. He had a long history of being in administrations and governing people and hearing cases. And Paul just says, you have a long history of this. You have been a judge to this nation for many years, and so I'm cheerful to make my defense. No flattery. Do you know why the Apostle Paul doesn't flatter? Do you know what flattery is? Flattery is lying. The Apostle Paul doesn't need to flatter. The Apostle Paul knows that flattery is a mark of a wicked man, not a righteous man. Psalm chapter 5, verse 9, There is nothing reliable in what they say. Their inward part is destruction itself. Their throat is an open grave, and they flatter with their tongue. That is the mark of a wicked man, not of the righteous. Flattery does not belong on the lips of a believer, because flattery is lying. It is the mark of a wicked man. Psalm 2, verse there's 12, verses 2 and 3, They speak foolishness to one another, With flattering lips and with a double heart they speak. And then the psalmist prays, May the Lord cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaks great things. doesn't belong on the lips of a righteous individual. Flattery is the mark of a wicked man. Flattery is also the mark of a liar. Proverbs 26, 28, A lying tongue hates those it crushes, and a flattering mouth works ruin. Proverbs 29, 5, A man who flatters his neighbor is spreading a net for his steps. You should never, ever trust an individual that you hear flattering. You know why? Because they're a liar. And the proverb says, if you hear somebody flattering you, he is spreading a net for your steps. He is he has ulterior motives for doing what he's doing. And he begins to flatter you. He is trying to gain something from you. Maybe it's respect. Maybe it is a favor. Maybe it is something financial. But if he is going to flatter you, he is spreading a net for your steps and he is going to wait for you to step onto it and believe him and trust him and then he's going to pull the net out from underneath of you. And he's got you. That's what a flatterer does. Flattery is the mark of a wicked man, the mark of a liar. Flatterers have ulterior motives. Flattery is also the mark of an adulteress. Proverbs 7, verse 5 that they may keep you from the adulteress, from the foreigner who flatters with her words. Proverbs 7.21, with her many persuasions she entices him, and with her flattering lips she seduces him. Flattery is the mark of an adulteress. Flattery is also the mark of a contentious woman or a contentious man. Romans 16, I urge you, brethren, to keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and to turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites, and by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspected. The contentious individual is a flatterer. A wicked man, a liar, an adulteress, a contentious man, and also a false teacher. Jude chapter 16 says, They are grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lusts, and they speak arrogant and flatter with their lips in order to gain an advantage. The false teacher is after something, and he flatters you in order to gain an advantage from you. That's not very good company, is it? Flattery is, is lying. See, friends, it doesn't matter whether what you say about somebody is nice and kind and generous and great and all all of these good things. If what you say about them, even if it's good, is untrue, it's still a lie, isn't it? And flattery is just saying something nice to someone's face that you would never say behind their back. Gossip is saying something behind their back that you would never say to their face. Flattery is just the opposite of gossip. It's lying. 
It's the mark of a wicked man. That's what Tertullus did. Paul had nothing of it. Paul didn't need to gain any advantage, did he? His, his focus wasn't on Felix. Paul knew that whatever whatever judgment, whatever decision that Felix handed down was God's will for him, and he was willing to trust the Lord. His hope wasn't in Felix. His eyes weren't on Felix. His trust wasn't in Felix. It was in God. And so the Apostle Paul knew, I don't have to flatter Felix. I don't have to puff him up. I don't have to go on about all these great things that I think he's done or I think he is and try and gain a good decision from him because that comes from the Lord. The Apostle Paul didn't need to do that. Typically, the defense would have started like this. If Paul were a typical defendant, he would have said, Felix, I know you're a just judge. I know you're a righteous man. I know you fear God. I know you're impartial. You'd never take a bribe. There's nothing about you that hints of any kind of impropriety or lack of integrity. And I know that whatever decision you hand down is going to be the best decision because you're just and every judgment that you make is just. Now, here's my defense. That's how Paul would have started if he were typical, but he's not typical. And after all of this flattery that Tertullus has given Felix, Paul steps to the front and Felix thinks that Paul's going to start with that sort of typical defense. And he just says, you've been a judge for many years, so I'm happy to give you my defense. And he goes into it. And Felix must have wanted to just stop the court and say, whoa, 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 hey, where's all the good things you're going to say about me? But the Apostle Paul doesn't fall into that trap because he's a righteous man and he knows that flattery does not belong on the lips of a believer. So he just gives his defense. You've been a judge to this nation for many years, and so I'm cheerful to make my defense before you. Now, why does the Apostle Paul say that? It highlights two things. First of all, Paul says it because it shows to Felix, or it reminds Felix, that in all the years that Felix has been governor of the nation, this is the first time the Apostle Paul has ever been in front of him, isn't it? You've been a judge for many years. Now, if everything that these men were saying about me is true, that I am a pest, that I am a seditionist, that I'm a sectarian, and that I commit sacrilege, if, if I'm that type of an individual, if I'm really the wicked man that they claim to be, I would have thought that I would have been in your courtroom long before now. But Paul is not a repeat offender. And in all of the years that Paul had been involved in ministry, in all of the years that the Apostle Paul had been traveling around the Roman Empire, if that were true of him, Paul would have been there before now. And he says, you've been a judge for many years. He's never been there before. And that argues strongly for his innocence. Second, it shows to Felix, or reminds Felix, that he knows well the nature of the accusers. He'd been a judge over the Jews for a long time. He knew their prejudices. He knew their intolerance. He knew their hostility to anybody who didn't toe the party line. He knew these people well. He knew Ananias well. Ananias, the high priest, had a history of corruption. He was the most corrupt individual who had ever been high priest. Everybody knew it, including Felix. And Felix knew Ananias. They knew each other. And so as the Apostle Paul says, you've been a judge for many years, he's reminding Felix, I've never been in front of you. This is my first appearance. And furthermore, Paul has confidence that he is not the new kid on the block. He's not going to be snowed by the tactics of Tertullus and Ananias and the Jews. He's going to be able to recognize what they're after and what they're doing and the source of all the criticism. Paul's saying, you're not a newbie. You're not the new kid on the block. They're not going to be able to get, slip anything past you, and so I'm, I'm happy to make my defense. That's not flattery. That's just, that's just the facts. Then Paul goes on to make three arguments that argue for his innocence. Now, if you're looking at your outline that came in the bullets and you're saying, wow, you mean all of that was just introduction? Well, it is, but take heart, my friends, because the introduction today was longer than the rest of the sermon is going to be because these three arguments argue for Paul's defense, so we're going to take them rather quickly. The first thing that the Apostle Paul argues is that he didn't have time to cause sedition. Look what he says. You can take note of the fact that not more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. 
In other words, I didn't have time to cause sedition. They're charging me with going into the city of Jerusalem and stirring up the Jews. And Paul says, it wasn't even more than 12 days ago that I went up to Jerusalem to worship. You can take note of that fact. In other words, he, he, Paul is saying you, it's a matter of public record. They're in Caesarea, and Paul was traveling with seven other men, all of whom could testify as to, day that, as to the day that they left Caesarea for Jerusalem to go up for Pentecost. Seven men who could testify. And remember, Paul was staying with Philip the Evangelist, a longtime resident of Caesarea. Philip could testify to that. Paul could call witnesses that could all say, this is the day that we left to go up to Caesarea. And Paul says, it wasn't more than 12 days ago that I went up there to worship. I haven't had time to cause sedition. Now, there's some problem with the 12 days, and you might not catch it unless I put that note at the bottom of your insert. Here's the problem with the 12 days. Some people say, well, the 12 days applies. Um, the 12 days includes arriving to, in Jerusalem all the way up until the day of this trial. The problem with that is that if you go back to Acts chapter 21 and you start adding up the days, you get far more than 12. You come up with like 17 or 18 days. The 12 days refers not to the time that he arrived in Jerusalem to the day of the trial because you have two days in Jerusalem, then Paul goes to the temple for, let's assume, five days, and then he's arrested, and then there's the day before the Sanhedrin, and then there's the day that the plot was conceived and Paul had to be rushed out of Caesarea, then there's the day that he arrives in Caesarea, and then there's five days waiting for Felix. So you have at least 16 days there. The 12 days doesn't include the five days that they were waiting for the prosecution to arrive. The 12 days includes from the time that Paul set foot in Jerusalem till the day that he arrived in Caesarea. And if you go back and you count the chronology, you come up with those 12 days. In other words, the Apostle Paul is saying from the time that I left Caesarea to the time that I came back to Caesarea, it has only been 12 days. That's all the longer I was gone. And you can take note of that fact. And listen, out of those 12 days, four of them were spent in, in, uh, custody under Lysias in the barracks. I have eight days. That's not enough time to cause sedition. Paul says, I didn't have time to cause sedition. I was only there for 12 days. Second thing he argues, they didn't have any intention to cause sedition. Why did he go up to Jerusalem? What does he say? I went up, why? To worship. I didn't go up to gain a hearing. I didn't go up to present my case. I didn't go up to get into an argument with the Jews about their theology or their Messiah. I didn't go up to cause sedition. I didn't go up to cause a riot. I didn't go up to teach, preach, evangelize, minister. None of that. Why did I go up? I went up to worship. That is the only thing he went up for. Paul says, I went up to Jerusalem to worship and nothing more. I didn't have time to cause sedition and I didn't have intention to cause sedition. I didn't go to Jerusalem to talk or discuss anything with the Jews. I went up to worship. He went up to commune with his Jewish brethren, not to affront them, not to offend them. He went up to worship with them, not to discuss anything with them. Paul says, only 12 days. I didn't have time. The reason I went up was to worship. I didn't have the intention. Friends, let me ask you a question. Do you share that motive with the Apostle Paul? When you come to worship, do you come to worship or do you come to worship and do a dozen other things? Do you come here because you want to worship? Or do you come here because you want to keep up appearances or because it's a good place for your kids or because you haven't seen your friends in a long time or because you want to pass something out or spread around this or spread around that or just see how everybody's doing or check up on somebody else. Watch what somebody else is doing. See if they're in church. Why do you come? Do you come here on the Lord's Day to worship? To give your time, your talents, your treasure and yourself into service of the King of Kings and to worship Him through doing all of that? Do you come because you love God's Word you want to obey God's Word you want to pray God's Word and sing God's Word and hear God's Word? Come to worship? Paul says, I went up to Jerusalem to worship, and that was it. It's the only reason I was going. I didn't have time to cause sedition. I didn't have intention to cause sedition. And the third thing he argument that he raises is that they didn't present any proof of his sedition. Look at verse 12. Neither in the temple, 
nor in the synagogues, nor in the city itself did they find me carrying on a discussion with anyone or causing a riot. Verse 13, nor can they prove to you the charges of which they now accuse me. Paul says they haven't presented any proof. They simply raised the allegation. He stirs up dissension among all the Jews everywhere. No proof, no specifics. But look how emphatic the Apostle Paul is. Neither in the temple, neither, nor in the synagogue, nor in the city itself. Three times. No, no, no. He's emphasizing something there. Look how specific it is. Not in the temple where the sacrifices were taking place and everybody was gathered, nor was it in the synagogue, nor was it in the city itself. At no place in the city of Jerusalem or around the city of Jerusalem could they find anybody who could testify to having a discussion with the Apostle Paul or an argument. Paul says, I didn't go up there to discuss anything with them. I simply went up to worship. And not in any place, at any time, did they see me causing a dissension, causing a riot, or even carrying on a discussion with anybody. There's something odd about that, isn't it? Does it seem in keeping with what you know about the Apostle Paul that he would be silent ever? Can you ever picture the Apostle Paul being silent? When we think of Paul's, we've gone through the book of Acts, how do we think of him? We think of him of walking into a city and going down in the marketplace and reasoning with the people in the marketplaces, trying to convince them and persuade them that Jesus is the Christ. And then going into the synagogues on the Sabbath and having a discussion with the Jews and getting up and teaching or doing a scripture reading. And going into the temple and taking the opportunity to converse and interact with his Jewish brethren and maybe do some teaching in the temple. That's how we picture the Apostle Paul. But look what he says. I didn't discuss anything with anyone, anywhere, at any time. That seems out of keeping with the Apostle Paul, doesn't it? Was he scared? Was he cowardly? Was he afraid that he might suffer? Was he afraid of what people might say? Why was he silent? We don't think of him as being silent in all of those environments, but he was. Why? Friends, this is the reason. Sometimes silence is a virtue. Sometimes silence is the wise course of action. Sometimes it is better to say nothing than it is to say anything. And the Apostle Paul knew that he's walking into Jerusalem, he's walking into a hostile environment. All of the Christians there had already been told about him and what he taught, and he knew that he was a ticking time bomb waiting to go off, and everything was going to erupt around him, and the Apostle Paul did absolutely nothing to cause dissension, disagreement, uh, any kind of conflict, any kind of strife. He just goes into Jerusalem. He is there to worship. He worships God. He carries on no discussions with anyone about anything. He's not there to evangelize. He's not there to minister. He's not there to teach, to preach. He's not there to convert anybody. He's there to worship, and that's all he does. And he's absolutely silent. And he knows that as if he says anything, if he gets into a discussion with anyone, it's going to be misrepresented. It's going to be misreported. It's going to be misunderstood. It's going to be fodder for the enemy, and the Apostle Paul doesn't give him any fodder. He just goes there to worship. And he keeps his tongue tied, his mouth shut, because he knows if he says anything, it's going to make the situation worse. Neither in the temple, nor in the synagogues, nor in the city itself did they find me carrying on a discussion with anyone or causing a riot. He's utterly silent. You know what that shows? Uh, Silent. You know what that tells us about the Apostle Paul's character? He did not have a contentious or divisive spirit. He did not have a quarrelsome nature about him. If, if the Apostle Paul, if there was anybody that could have at that time created a riot, stirred up a crowd, or gained a following or a party, it was the Apostle Paul. He was a staggering intellect. He was a wonderful philosopher. He was a gifted preacher and teacher. He was a very persuasive man. He was untiring, relentless, energetic, ambitious, all of that. And if anybody could have gained a following, a crowd, it could have been the Apostle Paul, but he didn't go there for that. 
And if there was ever fertile soil for a revolt or a riot or a revolution, it was Jerusalem just prior to 70 A.D. But Paul didn't go there to do any of that. The situation was tense, and the Apostle Paul says, I went to worship, that's all I went to do. I had no time to cause a dissension. I had no intention of causing a dissension, and they can't even produce proof that I caused dissension or sedition because he did not have a quarrelsome spirit. Now let me ask you, do you have a quarrelsome spirit? You've met them. Plenty of Christians and plenty of people who all they want to do is argue. All they want to do is find strife. And if they can't find strife, they'll create strife. If they can't find a fight, they'll pick a fight. If they can't seek out a quarrel, they will create a quarrel. There are people who think, and you've met them and I've met them, people who think that honestly, if they are in the midst of strife or a discussion or an argument or something like that, that they are doing the Lord's work, advancing the kingdom, accomplishing something for good. Friends, I'm not talking about contention for the sake of truth. I'm talking about contention just for the sake of contention. Unfortunately, much of the strife and much of the dissension and much of the conflict and much of the quarrels and the combats that go on within church masquerade under the banner of truth, but they have nothing to do with the truth itself. You think your spiritual gift is criticism? You think your spiritual gift is quarreling? Is that why you come to church? Is that what you seek for? Always looking for your opportunity to give your little peace and to give your little conflict and to express your grudge? Is that what you do? The Apostle Paul wasn't like that at all. Absolutely not a not an inkling of quarrelsome in him. But you say he was always at the center of a conflict or a quarrel. That's true, but it wasn't his making. Never was his making. He never picked a fight. It came to the truth. He was willing to stand and fight. But he never sought that out. He never picked it. He never looked for it. He never got involved with it. He was not out to fight. He was not out to quarrel. Some people are. Proverbs 21, verse 9 says, It's better to live in the corner of a rooftop than with a contentious woman. Now, I'm not here to pick on women. Because listen, the, Solomon was writing the Proverbs to his son, giving his son advice about women. If Pro- Solomon had written Proverbs to his daughter, giving advice about men, he would have said it is better to live in the corner of your kitchen than in a whole house with a contentious man. Because it does not matter whether you are a man or a woman, a husband or a wife, a contentious individual is no blessing. A quarrelsome individual is no blessing to the home. It's no blessing to the workplace. It is no blessing to social circles. And it is certainly no blessing to the church of Christ. They don't belong in the church. Titus chapter 3 says that a quarrelsome man is perverted, sinning, and self-condemned. Rather, Paul says in Titus chapter 3 verse 2, we should malign no one, be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Proverbs chapter 6 says the Lord hates the man who spreads strife among brethren. You want to make yourself a target of God's animosity? Spread strife among brethren. He hates the man who spreads strife among brethren. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 30. Keeping away from strife is an honor to a man, but any fool will quarrel. I love that. Any fool pick a fight. Show me somebody who picks a fight, who loves quarrel, who's always involved in quarrels, conflicts, and strife and dissension, and I'll show you a fool. Proverbs 16, verse 28. A perverse man spreads strife. Proverbs 28, verse 25, an arrogant man spreads strife. Scripture says that the quarrelsome man is a fool, he is perverse, and he is arrogant. He is factious, he ought to be marked, and he ought to be gotten rid of. That's how Scripture describes quarrelsome people. Show me an argumentative man, a man who always is looking for strife, or a woman who is always looking for contention, and I will show you somebody who is arrogant, perverse, and foolish. Not the Apostle Paul. Went into Jerusalem, He could have had any fight that he wanted, picked any fight in any corner of the city that he wanted. Paul says they could not name one individual that I had a single discussion with. 
no contention, no strife. I was at the center of no controversy that was of my causing. Nothing. They picked the fight. I didn't. They couldn't bring in one single witness who could say, I had a discussion with him down in the marketplace, and he was arguing with me about Jesus. Couldn't present one witness. Paul says, I didn't have time to cause dissension. I didn't have intention of causing dissension. And they cannot produce any proof of causing dissension. Now, it's amazing what we learn about the Apostle Paul and his demeanor just from those few short verses, isn't it? It's amazing what we can learn about contentious people and the demeanor that we have when we're under false accusation. Friends, so often we get all bent out of shape when somebody says something false about us or slanders us or says something about us behind our back. We get all bent out of shape and we get our, our hairs back up on the back of our neck and we want to get into the fight and get into the quarrel and defend ourselves. And it's not to say anything about the accusations themselves or to say that they shouldn't be answered, but friends, you got to check your demeanor and ask yourself, is this honoring to the Lord? Is this glorifying to the Lord? Does my demeanor fit somebody who's innocent or does it fit somebody who's guilty and trying to prove their case? We've got to have an innocent demeanor. Paul did that because they couldn't prove sedition. He didn't have time for sedition. He didn't go there to create a sedition. And we'll next, we'll look next week at what the Apostle Paul says about those next two accusations, that of sect, sectarianism and sacrilege. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for what it tells us about a, the behavior and the demeanor and the attitude of godly people and righteous people. We pray that you would remove from us flattering lips, a lying tongue, a double heart, that you would remove from us a contentious spirit, a quarrelsome or combative attitude, and help us to comport ourselves in a way that is fitting with righteous people who have confidence in you and confidence in your Son and confidence in your Word, that you may be glorified through us, through our attitude and through all that we say and all that we do. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.